Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Chicago's Legal Latte, a series of podcasts brought to you by Lavelle Law Limited. Throughout this series, the attorneys from Lavelle Law will share their answers to questions about a variety of topics for individuals and small businesses. To participate in today's discussion, you can email us at podcast at lavellelaw.com. In most business relationships uh, and transactions, a contract is the cornerstone for for setting expectations and defining terms and conditions. Um, but as we've learned in the past, even with the presence of a, a contract, business disputes arise, and many of those disputes can lead to litigation. Now imagine what the outcome might be in cases when there's no contract to begin with or certainly not even a formal agreement. That's going to be our focus uh, today on Chicago's Legal Latte. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Jim Mitchell back for another episode. And today I'm joined by one of the uh, shareholders at Lavelle Law, an experienced and highly regarded litigator, Matthew Sheehan. Uh, it's been a while since he's had time to join us, so thank you for doing that today. Matthew, how are you? Great. Thanks a lot for having me, Jim. Yeah, pleasure. Um, so let's do a bit of a refresher here before we begin discussing uh, quasi-contract claims. Uh, in the eyes of the court, um, I assume written and then potentially oral contracts are generally recognized as, as valid in most business agreements. Yeah, of course. You know, if you have a, uh, a written contract that will control the relationship between the parties, and the court's not going to create uh, terms and conditions outside the term, you know, outside the four corners, as we attorneys call it, outside that contract itself, mm-hmm. it will simply interpret the contract and then enforce the terms you know for or against the parties and uh, same thing with an oral contract you know oral contracts are certainly enforceable obviously the proof problem becomes when you've got one party saying you know one thing and another party saying something different uh, then the court has to have live witnesses to determine kind of who is more credible but but in both of those instances where you have a written or oral contract you usually have an offer by one party to another you got an acceptance you have some consideration, whether it be money or performance of services. And then if you're in a courtroom, you probably have a breach. Someone didn't do what they were supposed to do, and that breach mm-hmm. caused you know, one of the party's damages. Um, with a quasi-contract claim, there is no contract. Um, but there are circumstances upon which the court will um, allow uh, um, what we call a quasi-contract, essentially, um, interpret or imply a contract uh, where actually a written or oral contract does not exist. Hey, tell me about that a little bit because, it, you know, I certainly I'm sure you've had experience in a lot of different scenarios. How, how does something like this come about where there really isn't a written or oral agreement and yet there's still some sort of assumption of, of exchange of goods or services? What, what might lead to this? Well, it is, you know, it, essentially the way the court looks at it is a quasi-contract is a contract implied in law. So it is it is a situation in which no actual agreement between the parties occurred, but a duty is imposed to prevent injustice. And that that is really the key. The prevention of unjustness is the fundamental aspect of the doctrine of quasi-contracts. So something happened between these parties and... Um, um, for example, some party may have performed services with the expectation that it would get paid, although there was not a written or oral contract in place, and the court may look at the situation and, and the testimony of the witnesses uh, and say, hey, it would be unjust 
for um, the party that received these services to retain the benefit of those services without payment to the party that performed those services. And is that you, you mentioned the four corners? So is that different anyway from a breach of contract? It sounds like sort of the same conditions without the contract. It's it's very similar. So you know the, the both there's two main types of claims. One's called unjust enrichment, and the other one is called quantum merit. They're kind of unjust enrichment's a little bit more normal English. Quantum merit's more of a, a kind of a Latin term for for you know serve you know payment for services. So both both actions are pretty similar in the, in the sense that a plaintiff who's suing has to show that valuable services or materials were, were, were furnished by that plaintiff. Uh, those services or materials were received by the defendant and under circumstances which would make it unjust for the defendant to retain the benefit without paying. And so there's no contract between the parties, but, you know, so for example, if I go, you know, mow my neighbor's lawn without them asking me to, or, or frankly, without them even knowing, you know, could he then make an unjust enrichment claim against, or could I make, and didn't pay me, could I make an unjust enrichment claim against my neighbor for payment? Probably not, because in that circumstance, there's nothing that the, you know, that my neighbor did to expect that I would mow his lawn or, or even ask that I mow his lawn, and nor did he have knowledge that I was doing that with the expectation of payment. Um, on the other hand, if, you know, I'm sitting at a family party with that same neighbor and, um, you know, he's asking, you know, hey, I'm going to be gone for a month. I wonder if, you know, how I'm going to get my lawn mowed. And um, I'd say I'd look into it or something like that. And then my son goes and mows his lawn, you know, every week for four weeks. Um, when he comes back, I could make a case that, you know, under those circumstances, I, I helped him out. He wanted his lawn mowed. My, my son did it, and uh, my son deserves to get paid. But um, it really comes, as you can tell, the problem is, determining what really occurred and then if uh, on the totality of the evidence presented is it really unjust is it is it really such a benefit to the defendant that it would be unjust for that person that received the benefit to not pay the plaintiff um and every situation is different and it really depends on the totality of of what occurred between the parties it, it would seem just from hearing, you know, the, the initial description here, this type of action would be, you know, awfully difficult to, to prove or uphold in a court. What what would sort of be the basis or how would you start to build an argument, you know, in the absence of a formal agreement? Is there Are there certain things that a court might look at, uh, as you said, you know, perhaps just, the, you know, the unjust enrichment, but uh, any particular actions or things that would stand out that say, okay, at least we, we have something to go on here? Well, frequently I would say as lawyers we plead these type of actions frequently, you know, as in a complaint, uh, as a claim that we would bring in the alternative. So maybe we believe there is a contract in place, whether it be oral or written, and then we um, also plead an unjust enrichment or quantum merit claim uh, in the alternative. So if somewhere down the line in the life of that piece of litigation there's – a defect in one of the elements where where the court will not find that a con a contract actually exists whether there's one of those elements offer acceptance consideration breach or damages that's missing and so I'm not able to prove up a contract claim even though my client and I thought we had a contract 
but if for some reason the court finds a deficiency, I need this as certainly as a fallback claim. And that's that's frequently how these are pled in court. A lot of times people plead a contract claim, they think they have a contract, but they're kind of, you know, covering their butt, so to say. And if for some reason their contract claim falls flat on its face, they've got one of these claims to fall back on and hopefully be able to prove up something uh, in the circumstances that surrounded the relationship between the parties uh, to in order to get some, some type of recovery for their client. And I want to take a look at the, the court's view of this in, in just a minute here. Let me remind folks we're talking to Matthew Sheehan, one of the shareholders at Lavelle Law, uh, taking some time to join us today. He's an experienced litigator. Uh, if you visit his profile page at LavelleLaw.com, you'll uh, see that he's been recognized by Super Lawyers Magazine for his work, uh, boy, about seven consecutive years now. Uh, LavelleLaw.com, home to articles that uh, Matthew's written, podcasts he's appeared on, and uh, a lot of other rich, relevant data that uh, you might want to take a look at. Uh, we're going to take a few more minutes of his time here today. And you, you were kind of talking about the processor, man, and, and it seems to me with the laws we have regarding contracts and, and the value of, of them, the way they're structured and how they can certainly be uh, proven in, in a court, it almost seems like the court would be really asking for trouble, more or less, to, to allow claims like this. Is there some... Um, reason that the courts say that they would accept these types of cases? Or is there some pursuit of justice, perhaps, that uh, says, yeah, we, we will uh, entertain these? Yeah, because there are circumstances where uh, where it, it makes sense. So, um, And then let me just, before I move on to a, a, an example of a, of a valid claim, you know, the difference between quantum merit and um, unjust enrichment really is just what's what's the measure of reco- recovery. So based both okay. claims you have plaintiff providing some service, you've got a defendant receiving some type of service or material, and and there's some kind of unjust thing going on here where the defendant it seems like should pay for what uh, the services or materials that have been provided by plaintiff. But usually in quantum merit you're looking at a recovery for the value of the work and materials provided, you know, essentially what, what is that plaintiff out as far as the services and materials that it would have been, you know, provided to, to a contractual client, basically. Uh, whereas an unjust enrichment, you're really looking at the benefit received and how much it, it helped the defendant and how much that defendant benefited. So that's just a, a little bit change. But so, for example, and, and this is kind of a third-party type of situation here where um, – there's a case out there uh, in Illinois where um, a plane refurbisher, um, um, you know, basically got into a contract to get its its plane uh, refurbished, fixed, um, but you know, it wasn't able to pay for it, so it got a third party to finance the project. Okay, so the the company that was doing the repair work went straight to the financer and said, "Hey, are you sure we're going to get paid?" for the work that we, we've been contracted for with this owner of the plane. They said, yes, please go ahead and finish the work on schedule. Now, the repair company and the financer don't have a contract relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Only the owner of the plane and the repair company do. But the, the financer, upon a request, said, yes, we want you to perform the work. Please do. And, of course, the financing company has a lien on that plane. So the more work that's done on the plane benefits the financer, financing company because – their asset that's leaned up is being improved. So the refurbishment is benefiting the financing company. It increases the value of the project it invested in. Um, but And then even as that bill um, 
and throughout the process of that generation of this situation, um, there was multiple conversations about it, and the financer financing company kept telling the repair company to perform the you know repairs. So of course, you know the story. Project's done. They present the bill. Finance that's controlling the bills that are paid refuses to get it paid. Now, you know, in court, the financing company kept arguing to the judge, hey, we don't have a contract with them. Plus, generally, the court's not going to impose one of these quasi-contract claims where there is a contract somewhere in the situation. But but here, the court said this, these circumstances are different. You know, you, you, you financing company, benefit, benefit from the increased value of the plane from all the repairs and refurbishment, and you enticed the repair company to do the work in the first place, and then you refused to pay them. So that is a classic situation where the court says, okay, there's no contract between the financing company and the repair company, but based on the totality of the circumstances here, it would be unjust to not have this repair company get paid by the financing company that kept egging them on to do the repairs and finish the project. And, the, you know, clearly the financing company benefited because that plane is more valuable now. So that's a situation that it makes sense that the court has these type of catch-all claims to make sure that, um, you know, defendants aren't um, able to just hide behind the non-existence of a contract when if you look at the circumstances, it really would be unjust to not have that repair company paid back by the financing company. And in just a few seconds left here, I'm just curious, in these cases, would a court then generally just uh, judge uh, in the amount of what is due, or would there ever be damages in a case like this as well? Yeah, so in that case, it was unjust enrichment, so they're not looking at the value of the services provided. They're looking at the benefit that the financing company got. So what you would probably do is try to get an expert that said, okay, this plane was worth, you know, I don't I don't know exactly from the case. It doesn't talk about the dollars, but let's say the plane was worth a million bucks before the repairs, and then the plane's worth two million after, then the damages would be a million bucks. That's how much the, the work benefited the financing company. That's how much it increased the value of the asset. Great. Well, uh, really interesting view today. We want to thank uh, Attorney Matthew Sheehan for being here. Uh, I'm going to send him back on his way to continue work for the day, so thanks so much for being here, Matthew. And, of course, to our listeners, we appreciate your time. Um, let me point you over to LavelleLaw.com, um, great place to get uh, some updates on um, topics like this and many others. We've got so many articles there, podcasts, and links to get you in touch with uh, both uh, Matthew Sheehan and all of the colleagues of his over at LavelleLaw.com. So thanks uh, so much for being here. We'll look forward to talking to you again very soon.